0: Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me this week is a new co-host, a guy that we introduced to you a few weeks ago, the new Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Captain Retired Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Thanks for uh, for subbing in for Bill Hamlet.
1: Uh, hello, Ward. Yes, happy to be here. Hug that mic a little more. New guy. Happy to be here. <laughs> um and looking forward to uh, to talking about this uh, this awesome article today.
0: Yeah. So um, Bill is down uh, in uh, Quantico today. Bill Hamlet. Bill Hamlet. Yeah. We gotta figure this out. Are, are you gonna be Billy? What? What? Do I, I know you do the thing one, thing two stuff, but that's kind of dorky. I gotta say, right? Doctor Seuss reference. Um, so what? Do you, what's it gonna be?
1: Well, I never had a call sign. Because uh, you're an intel because officer. Because I'm an intel officer. And you were a Black Shoe
0: before that. I was. Right. Okay,
1: I had another name as a child. I won't bring up and uh, <laughs> Booger <laughs> Bill B is probably Bill,
0: Bill B. B Billy B. That's got some. That's got a ring to it. A little bit of juice. We got to figure this out because yeah. we're always like, Hey, Bill, and like, which Bill are you talking about? Right. We've got to figure this out.
1: Probably Bill and Bill B is the best way to do this. Okay. Bill. Bill is Bill Hamlin. Yes. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay.
1: He's got squatters right on Bill.
0: Yeah, he's he's the Bill. He, right. he already planted his flag on that. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, I, uh, have just gotten back from Bermuda. I was on vacation there. Um, and it's an amazing place if you've never been there. Um, and I think you had mentioned before that you haven't been there. Um, and you know, we used to have a P3 base there, which had to be the best deal ever, um, to have, a, have be able to debt out of Bermuda. Um, and I know that um, we had a sinkland fleet back in the day who who got in trouble for playing too much golf at Bermuda, um, and so it's it's paradise. It's the best, you know. I've I've done during workups. I've done St. Thomas and Nassau and Puerto Rico, and Bermuda is by far uh, the best of those kinds of places. So, um, but happy to be back, you know. We're back here in the uh, the middle of. Uh, uh, some of our sponsored student outreach, uh, as we've told the audience before, we have our sponsored student program where our foundation finds benevolent donors to uh, buy gift student sponsorship or student memberships for midshipmen nationwide and some centers of excellence like BDOC and EWS and TBS and um, uh, different places like that. So we're right in the heart of our midshipmen facing at NROTC units and the service academies, ca- academies, which is to say Navy and Coast Guard. So that's a very cool program. Um, and if you're interested in sponsoring a Naval Academy company or your ROTC unit NROTC ROTC unit, uh, let us know here. Uh, and and we will uh, uh, hand you off to the foundation and, and see if that might work with that. We very much appreciate our donors in that respect. And, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's what's going on, right? It's fall.
1: That's right, and um, I would uh, remind the listeners that we um, have uh, many essay contests, uh, thirteen uh, right now that uh, run in proceedings. We have a new one coming online um, shortly. It's the Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest. The deadline for submissions is thirty one October.
0: <coughs> Which is unlike the deadline that's published in the September issue of Proceedings. That's right. It was right?
1: originally going to be 30 September, but a change was made, um, and the uh, September issue had already gone to the printer. Mm-hmm. But it is 31 October to give the midshipmen and cadets a little more time uh, once they're back at school to uh, to write and th- think and write about a, a topic. Um,
0: and this it, these essay contests are the real deal. Not only do you get published in Proceedings, but there's a pretty substantial monetary uh, award for being first, second, or third.
1: That's right. Most of them have uh, uh, have sponsors. And uh, the um, Coast Guard essay contest, which ran it was done in the spring, um, placing third was a cadet Evan Touareg at the Coast Guard Academy, whose uh, essay will be published in the October issue, which will be out in a few days.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, so if you're listening and you're a midshipman, Or a cadet at the Coast Guard Academy, uh, you know, and you're thinking you needed a reason to write a proceedings article. Again, as Bill just said, as Billy B. just said, um, it's the Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest. The deadline is the end of next month, the end of October. So uh, get cracking and and get that into us um, and we'll take care of the rest. All right. Why don't we get right to our guest, Bill?
1: Um, sure thing. So I'd like to introduce today um, Captain Robert C. Rubel. Uh, Barney had uh, a distinguished thirty year career as a naval aviator. So the article that published in the September issue of Proceedings, which was the aviation issue, uh, used carriers differently in a high end fight. Uh, take us through your view of the carrier's role today.
2: Well, hi guys, and thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate it. I'm always happy to talk about aircraft carriers and naval aviation. Um, yeah, the the aircraft carrier's role has um, evolved. Maybe I should say the aircraft carrier has accreted functions and roles over time. Uh, I mean, going way back, and and uh, <clears throat> they were initially regarded as eyes of the fleet, you know, spotting battleship uh, shell fall uh, and scouting. Uh, Then in early World War II, they became cavalry, doing hit-and-run raids, suppressing Japanese airfields, things like that. And then uh, especially at Coral Sea and Midway and beyond, they became uh, capital ships, uh, the kind of ship that can sink the uh, enemy's key ships. Um, Then after World War II, they... uh, Shifted into the nuclear delivery role, and they became nuclear uh deterrence and delivery platforms um in Korea and Vietnam they shifted again or accreted another role as an airfield at sea, which is where you you have a base they they modlock, kind of sit like in uh Yankee station or Dixie station off Vietnam and just uh feed sorties into a uh, into the fight ashore. They've done that quite a bit and then uh They've been used extensively uh, in the, especially in the post World War II era, as I would call them, geopolitical chess pieces. There's these. Uh, that's six doctrinal roles that the the aircraft carrier has performed over the years. We're used to any anybody in the Navy now, probably has not. Um, seen any use of them other than as an airfield and possibly a geopolitical chess piece. And that kind of seems what they are, but there, there's a lot more to them. There's a lot more history to them than that. And there's a lot more, um, potential for, them uh, than just those two roles. Um, what I'm, uh, proposing is a kind of a return uh, you know, back to the future type of thing where, they adopt or readopt adopt uh, a bit of the eyes of the fleet role, maybe in an in a updated high-tech manner uh, where they're supporting uh, distributed lethality forces and they're supporting um, information assets, airborne information assets, like the MQ-4 Triton and the P-8 uh, Poseidon and maybe other stuff that, that is up in the air that will need to be uh, protected and, and supported. So that's that's the gist of my argument. Uh, strike warfare, again, something that everybody's kind of used to, will still be an important part in the sense that they support OEF, uh, and other things like that, where the environment is sufficiently per- permissive, the, the strike fighters will still have to um, conduct um, missions overland to support troops, things like that, where they can. And uh, the carriers will still be moved around as geopolitical chess pieces. Maybe not as uh, extensively as they once were, but they'll, they'll, you know, it still means something when the uh, Department of Defense orders a carrier to steam through the South China Sea or up near Taiwan, for instance. Uh, but in terms of high-end conflict where we have to conduct uh, strikes against targets that are defended by modern systems like the S-300 and uh, other, other things like that, um, then that has increasingly become the, the province of missiles uh where why i I feel it necessary to argue this is that there is a school out there that advocates for the development of a uh, long range all aspect stealth penetrating uh strike aircraft for the navy and and you know if you've read some of uh some of the articles like uh Jerry Hendricks has written about the decreasing uh radius of combat radius of air wings over the years and he's right um <clears throat> The question is, should the Navy invest a lot of money, uh, in the development of an all aspect, long range, uh, penetrating, uh, stealth bomber, uh, kind of like the old a 12, uh, my position is no, uh, that mission is all but obsolete. And in any case, the air force is performing it or developing a new met- penetrating man bomber, uh, the navy is better served by developing what i would call son of f14 a uh, a long range long endurance maybe not so stealthy uh missile carrying fighter uh inter- fighter interceptor that can reach out a long ways can stay in the air quite a while and carries a, a good load of long range missiles to protect the ph the mq4s and establish air superiority over the Distributed lethality forces, whether they're destroyers, LCSs, or corvettes, or whatever we develop to operate independently or semi-independently in a distributed manner under the umbrella of enemy missile arcs. So that that's kind of where I'm at.
1: And and Barney, is there is there there is an argument that uh, that the manned tactical. Uh, strike aircraft, the strike role, would still be uh, better when you're in a high-end uh, fight where you have to do quick re-attack and, and hit targets over and over again to ensure that the, the effect has been achieved and that the missile force uh, option uh, is not as adept at that.
2: Yeah, uh, I've uh, been in discussions where that argument was rolled out. Uh, there is no doubt that certain targets and target complexes do require a uh, uh, reattack even prompt attack the question is what do you do it with now if you did it with manned aircraft and again we're talking about areas targets that are defended by modern dense um, air defense systems you're probably you can't count on not losing aircraft uh, even if you lose maybe just one or two aircraft per uh, mission, pretty soon your air wing is uh, brought to its knees. I mean, there's X number of aircraft in that air wing. It's 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 a finite number, and even though it's bigger than most nations' air forces, uh, still, if let's say you've got uh, 50 strike fighters. Uh, or 48 inhabiting a deck, if you lose a couple of them a day over uh, five to 10 days, uh, you're out of Schlitz. Uh, And then you also have the problem of uh, rescuing the crews, et cetera. This this is a problem with manned or unmanned uh, aircraft. I mean, the drip, drip, drip of losses against level of effort, I call it, where you have to continually restrike strike um, targets in heavily defended environments. That is a missile environment, not a aircraft environment. Um, the argument has been made that, well, why don't we just have manned or unmanned or optionally manned aircraft that carry uh, standoff missiles? Well, yeah, that's better, but essentially you've got a very expensive aircraft that is nothing more than a first stage, uh, booster for the, the terminal missile. So why not just use missiles? Um, so I don't think the argument about reattack, attack prop re-attack, uh, holds up.
0: So when we think back to the last time we did, um, you know, serious, uh, strike warfare into a sophisticated integrated air defense, um, that's either Desert Storm 1 or Vietnam, right? And and so um, Desert Storm 1, we picked it apart pretty quick with the F-117s and and uh, we had a permissive environment within a week. Um, and so our losses were minimal. Um, I, we've We've never had what you're talking about, as we talk about peer threat, like going against a mainland China or even maybe in North Korea with a very sophisticated integrated air defense. Um, And when you start talking about losing F-35s at the rate of two a day, as you're saying, that's a pretty scary proposition with respect to replacements, not to mention just the cost. Because as you know intimately, the F-35s justification was survivability. You know, there's just, oh, it's stealth so it would never be shot down. Um, and I don't know what PAA is for an F-35 squadron. Is it 12 or how many, how many airplanes in an F-35 squadron?
2: I imagine they'll start with 12, but. Yeah. So uh, it's, 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 it's the same
0: as we have today, right? So like you're saying, (laughs) if we're, if we're in a, uh, high threat environment where we're somehow they've cracked the code on, on how to target stealth airplanes, um, then we as you've said run out of schlitz in, in, in short order and the thing that's an eye opener there is what's the replacement uh uh supply look like you know um and and it's not there aren't really many that that many airplanes uh, to replace those that are yeah. on the front line the, the, right? the,
2: well a couple things here uh first of all um i just miss vietnam but i i was uh, a junior pilot during the 73 uh, war in uh uh, the Yom Kippur war in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, I got aboard, I, uh, USS independence and we were planning strikes in case we needed to into on Egyptian forces into the Sinai. And it was a literal forest of Sa sixes. You know, we didn't have to face the Sa six in, in Vietnam. Uh, you know, the Israelis lost a lot of airplanes to that thing. And, and we probably would have too, had we ended up conducting strikes, uh, And then um, down the road a few years, I was a strike leader uh, during the uh, 1980 hostage crisis. I was aboard Eisenhower, and, uh, you know, I looked uh, at—I was responsible for one of the uh, targets there. And, uh, of course, they had hawks. Well, uh, you know, we didn't have a counter for the hawk. And so we eventually ordered fuzzbusters—no kidding— speed uh trap uh de- detectors fuzzbusters put on our windshields because they could see the uh, c w illuminator of the hawk, and all that told you was you were gonna die in thirty seconds I mean there was no way to <laughs> there was no way to counter that right
0: yeah
2: well look at look at the modern s three hundred i mean maybe we'll i I would hope we wouldn't lose airplanes, but you can't uh plan operations and and strategically plan on the assumption you're not going to lose aircraft. That's just doesn't make any sense. So uh, you're, you're, you're going to, you have to assume that you're going to have losses. The other thing that people miss, you know, when they think about world war two, especially what they miss are all those aircraft carriers that were essentially aircraft, spare aircraft delivery platforms The the fleet, traveled around with CVEs and certain other aircraft carriers that had nothing but replacement aircraft on them to keep the air wings on the fast carriers up to to strength. You know, we don't have that today. You know, the the machinations we went through to reinforce the Israelis during the 73 war, we had aircraft carriers stationed, uh, dotted across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. And so the A-4s and the F-4s that we reinforced them with played lily pad from aircraft carrier to aircraft carrier uh, to bring them back to Israel. The aircraft, we, we lost a couple aircraft in this 83 Lebanon raid. I was one of the guys that flew a uh, ferried, uh, in fact, I was the flight lead for the uh, uh, replacement flight that we, we followed three uh, Air, Air Force C KC-135s from Norfolk to Sigonella. To get those three aircraft, just three aircraft over there. I mean, people have lost sight of the level of effort it takes to fight a big fight.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that's absolutely right, and and I think in that that myopia that you're talking about has affected um, our requirements and the the way that procurement has gone since. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I I just think since you know you and i and the air wing composition that we're thinking of in the in the cold war um there you know we have airplanes that are very expensive the you know the the, the pr- price per copy is is prohibitively expensive in terms of replacements um and the it, it takes years and years to manufacture these airplanes um so when you talk about losing them at that rate um what what does the bench look like you know and how how do you do what you've just talked about do you you know um, harvest them from the rag and then like you and I would do, you know, fly them trans and get out there. And, you know, but in the meantime that they're already, uh, you know, down to the point where where they've drawn back and they can't execute the war. I, I just don't think, well, you, you, as you've described, really, if because the assumptions made is the aircraft carrier like a Ford class carrier is is invulnerable, right? Okay, that's part A. And then part B is the airplanes on that flight deck of the invulnerable platform are themselves, uh, maybe it overstates to say invulnerable, but they're, they're stealthy. So they're, the survivability rate is in the 90th plus percentile, right? So if those two assumptions uh, are literally shot to hell on day one of the war of a peer conflict, then we are sucking to the degree that we have no way to fight the war. Right. I mean, right. I so we, something? we, we
2: have to, uh, yeah. And there, there's another aspect to this too. Um, uh, when I was over in the med during the 73 Eastern med, uh, of course we were in a showdown with the Soviet, uh, fifth Escadra and, uh, we were outgunned. They had 96 ships. We had 63. They had anti-ship missiles. We had none. We didn't even have any tactics. All we had were iron bombs, uh, And so at the time, you know, just us JOs were talking about, well, shoot, maybe we need to uh, run, you know, things look like they're getting too hot. We run back through the Straits of Sicily back to the Western Med to get untargeted and unlocated and then fight our way back in, a rollback type of thing. Uh, Maybe, but, you know, but even in that case, had we done that, of course, the Soviets could have said, well, you know, let's not have a war here. Let's everybody go to the UN say, let's everybody stay in place until, and, and cool this all down and negotiate, which, you know, that would have been politically hard to, um, overcome, but that would have left Israel isolated. Well, you name it, whether it's Taiwan, the South China sea, the Senkakus or anything in the, in the med, wherever. if, if we don't stand our ground, as it were, or um, I wrote an article on this in the, uh, let's see, what was it? It was the September 2013 proceedings, seed no water, okay? If we're not going to turn tail and run to to uh, um, reestablish favorable ge- uh, geometry for warfare, if we're going to stand our ground, uh, standing doing it with aircraft carriers is probably a bad idea for any number of reasons. We're going to do it with distributed lethality forces. And those are the guys that are going to be in the threatened waters, and they need support. So why not keep the aircraft carriers back where they ought to be, where the threat is manageable, and then reach forward with your air to, to maintain air superiority over those uh, distributed lethality forces that are more risk-tolerant and can, we, therefore, cede no water? Yeah, so that That, that, that,
0: as a a Tomcat guy, that logic does my heart good. But there's not an airplane that is either in the fleet or on the drawing board that can do that mission, right? I mean, we've given up speed, because if you're talking about a time-distance problem, we've said because of the forward quarter capability and stealth, speed is a dated metric, right? So we've given up speed, and we've given up range. Um, So... I, I guess the overall question this, you, I don't know if you read the three part series that Admiral Swift did uh, a few months back talking about training for the high end fight. Um, and, well, and we
2: did, uh, he and I talked.
0: Okay. So, so, in your mind, are we training for this high end fight in this way? As you talk about, you know, drop back and punt and these kinds of things, is, is, is this in the mindset of, of the warfighter at this time?
2: Uh, well, certainly was in Admiral Swift's mind. Uh, and you know, he's, he's a, a a great American hero in my book. Um, but to the extent that Phil Davidson, uh, carries on what Swift started, uh, we're getting there, you know, we're starting to get there. There's a lot more on a broad, uh, basis to do, whether it's Naval education and training or, uh, you know, getting the ethos that Swift instilled in Pack Fleet into now a second fleet, uh, maybe fifth fleet. But uh, it is kind of uh, a corporate culture. What does it mean to be a naval officer? What does it mean to be a sailor? Um, We're entering an age where, where that definition needs to be revisited. And, uh, it, you know, uh, the Institute published a great book, uh, Tom, our Trent Hone's, uh, learning war. I don't know if you've read it, but it, but that is an outstanding book. Yeah. We had Trent
0: on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, we've read it. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's CNO's top recommendation these days, by
2: the way. Yep. And, and he puts his, Trent puts his finger on it. Um, it is, the Navy has to become a learning organization. The problem being, of course, that we're so busy that the the fleet is unlike the fleet of eighteen ninety through nineteen forty one that wasn't saddled with comprehensive forward presence. Um, the fleet of today is, and it's a small fleet, relatively speaking. And so trying to carve out not only time for uh, fleet battle experiments like SWIFT did, but to carve out time to learn uh, is uh, a real challenge for us. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to get there from here. Uh, but the Navy needs to become a learning organization, and that is a fundamentally different thing than we got right now.
1: You you also talk in the piece about you know given this argument you're making that the that the fundamental mission of the carrier needs to change in the high end fight. Um, obviously that's a mindset, it's a culture. Um, it will take training and different <coughs> ways of thinking. Um, but it also there's some practical issues and one and you point to in the article you know the, how many carriers do you need in that new mission in, in the future and um, Using the amphibious uh, uh, carriers in a different way to to also meet this sort of uh, support the missile centric forces uh, mission. Uh, can you elaborate on that just a little bit?
2: You, you know who Wayne Hughes is. He's a legend in the Navy, and uh, he's out at the PG school. Wayne and I have been uh, uh, had a mutual admiration society going on for decades, uh, and we've worked together at time from time to time, uh, but we differ uh, a bit on, uh, the value of large versus small carriers. Um, over the years, I've been a advocate of, of the big carrier, bigger, the better. Um, just if you, if you look at what it takes to fight a flight deck, um, and the amount of sorties you can put in the air and the flexibility of the deck, uh, in my view, there's, you know, the minimum size is a Nimitz class. Um, on the other hand, you know, they've, we've kind of priced ourselves almost out of the uh, out of the um, arena there with uh, Ford, um, and so we have to look into uh, the viability and utility of smaller carriers. Now, in World War II, of course, if you look at the composition of the uh, carrier groups, the Task Force Thirty Eight, Task Group Thirty Eight. Point one point two, et cetera you'll see that they they'd have two fast carriers and a couple light carriers um, co- constituting that task force along with the other kinds of ships um, the light car- the Navy opposed the uh development of light carriers, which were based on cruiser hulls, uh, but Congress forced the Navy to ex- build the the light carriers, the independence class, and uh, the reason was they were available. The Navy needed decks fast, and so this is a way to get decks fast. Um, So if you look at today, how do we get decks fast? Well, they're called LHAs uh, combined with the F-35B. Now, the Marines will fight that tooth and nail, but there is a source of a good uh, 8 to 10 uh, kind of CVLs. And they could, the, the F-35 changes things. As much as people don't like it, isn't, and yes, it costs too much, but its electronic uh, capabilities, uh, you know, compensate for that a bit. And uh, so I think a, a CV, LHA, uh packing uh, a full complement of F-35s would be a very interesting com- complement to a... Uh, uh, nimitz or ford class especially if the nimitz or ford class had a the unmanned tanker which is coming so you got range you got tanking ability and b if we developed a long-range son of f-14 fighter uh, that complement would uh, be a very useful thing in uh fighting the information war Uh, you know uh going in a bit different direction. Admiral Sobrowski, who I worked for at the both as a CAG and at the War College, uh, had this saying that you fight for information first. Um, and I agree with that. And you look at World War II, especially the, the battles uh, the, around uh, Guadalcanal, uh, it was he who could gain and utilize information first would, would win those battles. And I don't think anything's going to change. And so the air wing can be a powerful tool for winning, uh, for fighting for information, um, whether generating information through the F-35, whether it's targeting or whatever, or not violating the principle of security for our info forces, for the Tritons, for the P-8s and for other info uh, sensors and stuff. Um, the air wing can be a, a powerful thing for that. It has to operate continuously. I mean, we can gang our carriers together, uh, two and three and four, uh, into task multi carrier task forces. But if you look at it, we the area that we would have to establish air superiority or air superiority or, over is huge, and so we're going to have to distribute our aircraft carriers too and but they need a consort so that you can keep aircraft in the air 24/7 for indefinite periods and that's where i think the LHAs as acting as CVLs uh, really come into play so what what's your
0: uh your temperature with respect to if the bubble went up in a peer fight today uh would be would be be ready <clears throat>
2: Uh, my, my answer is, uh, I don't know. I, I think that we, we, the U S Navy still retains, uh, significant advantages over the PLAN. Um, but I think the PLAN is advanced to the point where it, they could make it ugly, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, we it wouldn't be a, a desert storm type thing where we're just beating up on uh, a uh, incompetent opponent. Uh, they've gained competency. They've got a lot of missiles, and uh, you can shoot down some. You can decoy some. You know, you can do counter targeting all that. But when they have that many, uh, some of those things are going to get through, and uh, we we got to figure out what to do. A you know, and this is a whole another discussion about um, reloading uh, VLS at sea and stuff, but we have to be able to uh, fight continuously for some indefinite amount of time. It's, it isn't going to be a hit-and-run thing. And, uh, you know, that that was what the fleet had to learn to do in World War Two, and, and the whole, it, again, Trent Holmes' book, chronicles how the Navy figured out how to keep unremitting pressure on the Japanese. Uh, Right now uh, we're in the position of the Navy in 1942. uh, Before we were able to do that, I mean we can win battles like at whether it's Coral Sea or Midway or, or whatever, but we're not in a position to win a war uh, by keeping unremitted, unremitting pressure on the enemy.
0: But to, just to remind the audience what Trent was saying during that show and, and the point of that book is the perception that we got our act together with respect to innovation happened at Pearl Harbor is flawed, right? This is his point. The framework for innovation was created by the insurgents at the turn of the century. So if we talk about long lead You've already said in the show that we're we're maybe a little bit deficit with respect to uh, per, you know, warfighter, critical thinking skills and innovation at the unit level. Um, So, again, at the schoolhouse and the stuff that you teach, uh, you know, at at the War College and other centers of excellence, how are you feeling about the the Navy's identifying this as a problem and, and addressing it in a meaningful way?
2: well i i i believe the cno gets it um and i think uh that feeling is generally shared by the 3 and 4 stars but um it's i think that among the deficits that we have i mean there's there's all kinds of institutional inertia that uh makes it hard to transition from a uh, peacetime policing navy which is what we are, have been, and people can say war fighters, but no, we're a peacetime policing Navy into a a no kidding war fighting Navy. Um, A lot of things have to change. One of the things I'm working on, uh, another article, is is advocating for the – Reintroduction of true two-sided war gaming, not only into the war college curriculum, but as a, a kind of steady intellectual diet in both uh, fleet experiments and uh, training exercises in general. Uh, uh, if you if you look on the SimSec website, uh, Dmitry Filipov, I don't know if you know who he is. Yes.
1: Uh,
2: on SimSec, he's written a uh, a series of good articles on uh, the, how the Navy forgot to fight. And that really should be required reading it for everybody, but uh, we have, and it, you know, it's not a matter of courage or intelligence or you know uh, smart officers' willingness, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of institutional um, values, ethos, procedures, et cetera, that have to change to really uh, turn the fleet into a, a fighting machine again.
0: Well the article is titled Use Carriers Differently in a High End Fight it's in the September issue of Proceedings magazine the author is Captain Robert C Rubel call sign Barney Uh Barney thanks for the time with us and uh, hopefully we'll see your name as a byline in a n- near future issue of Proceedings uh, and thanks for coming by the podcast today
1: Yep thank you very much Yeah Bob. let
2: me let me uh let me just uh thank the Naval Institute for its work I mean I you can see even from Hone's book, for any kind of naval history of the U.S. Navy you read, uh, the influence of the Naval Institute as a forum for professional discussion uh, can't be overstated. So uh, thank you, you guys, keeping those fires burning.
0: Well, th- thank you for that. those great words. Uh, and as we say here when we end each show, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.